This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Bishop Stuart Ruck. The psalmist there in verse 2 describes a life experience. He's using a metaphor. He talks about the earth falling away. Many of you have had an experience where it's as if the earth is falling away. A crisis or life disappointment, shocking moment. I'll tell the story of two different men who had similar experiences. In both cases, their earth, their world fell away. But they had two very different responses. The first is one of my heroes, Theodore Roosevelt. On a Valentine's Day in the late 19th century, Theodore Roosevelt experienced what would be nearly unimaginable for many of us here. In the same house, on the same day, his mother lay ill downstairs, his wife recovering from childbirth upstairs. Within hours of one another, both died. The devastation was almost impossible to describe for Roosevelt. An assiduous journal keeper, he wrote in his journal that day, a large, dark X on that Valentine's Day page. And under it, he wrote, the light has gone out in my life. Nearly a hundred years later, a Christian leader and theologian, Dr. Gerald Sitzer, would have a very similar experience. Dr. Sitzer was leaving an evening event with his family. He was hit by a drunk driver, head-on collision. And in that accident, his mother died, his wife died, and his daughter was killed. Sitzer, though, in trying to describe what he experienced, while he also used the image of light as Roosevelt did, he talked about light in a different way. He talked about because he knew the Lord, because he had spent years believing and obeying the teachings of the Bible, because he had spent years fostering a close relationship with Jesus that when that unimaginable, when that earth falling away moment came in his life, this is what he wrote. He said, the quickest way for anyone to reach the sun and the light of day is not to run west, chasing after a setting sun. But instead, he said, I learned to head east, to plunge into the darkness until I came to the sunrise. I learned to head east, he said, rather than changing a fleeting light, rather than moving into utter despair, and we are not one to critique Theodore Roosevelt, how he survived that is a matter of incredible dignity. But he said, I would not chase the fading lights of day, but I would plunge into the darkness until I came to the sunrise. In both men's lives, the earth gave way. But Dr. Sitzer, was ready for that calamity in that moment. 
He believed the gospel. He believed that God is real. He believed that God is a very present help in trouble, and he had somewhere to go. Family of God, I bring to you Psalm 46, that you may have somewhere to go when the earth falls away, when the mountains tremble, when the seas roar and churn. You must have somewhere to go. It may be that you are in an earth-falling-away moment right now. It may be that you need to be ready for that moment to come. But in this life of calamity and significant human sin and pain and disappointment and abandonment, we want to be ready. We want to be ready to believe the declaration of this psalm, God is our refuge and strength. This psalm is often categorized as what's called a psalm of Zion. Zion means Jerusalem. It's a song that does indeed proclaim the beauty of Jerusalem and Jerusalem as a refuge, Jerusalem as a kind of of sanctuary, and that would be right. I, I think I would call it a psalm of sunrise. It even says in, in verse 5 and, and refers to God will help her when the dawning comes, when the morning dawns. It's a psalm of sunrise. It's a psalm that declares the truth of who God is and that even amidst the profundity of darkness and the overwhelming nature of darkness, God is there. God is present. Look with me at Psalm 46. It, it's, it, it, it's a piece of music. It's a piece of poetry. It's a piece of, of music. And it moves in three movements throughout this piece of poetic music. We first see that God is close amidst chaos, verses 1 to 3. God is a sanctuary amidst a siege, verses 4 to 7. Against an attack, he's a sanctuary, verses 4 to 7. And God is a peaceful conqueror amidst great conflict, verses 8 to 11. Look at how this starts, verse 1. We'll move to chaos, but that's not the first word or image that the poet wants to begin with. As a matter of fact, he begins in a declarative way. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He begins with the fact of God. In other parts of the Bible, there will be teachers who will create an apology for God amidst darkness, a, a, what's often called a theodicy. That is to say, a way in which we explain how can a good God allow sin and suffering. I taught on that very thing in February, if you're interested in that. But that is not the psalmist's objective. He won't offer a caveat here. He, he won't offer an apology here. What he will do is declare two realities poetically right alongside each other, God is our refuge and strength. God is very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Now watch him. Just in case for a moment you go, well, wait a second. That's all you've got? God is a refuge and strength? That's all you've got? That You're just going to say that and think that helps? Yes, it's beautiful. Yes, it's poetic. Does the writer of this know anything about the reality of life? The minute that you start to think that, he'll take you into a parallelism where he's going to parallel four different phrases, and he'll use and create emphasis by doing so. 
Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble, boom, 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 boom. Have no question. The writer of this poem has no illusion about the realities of earth giving way and mountains trembling in our life. But he wants to set up a contrast. He wants to set, this is who God is. This is the fact of God. And even these realities do not take away from the fact of God, who is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, you're a Midwesterner. So you're going, well, I've never had the earth give way. We, we don't have earthquakes. Um, we don't have a lot of mountains. Not a lot of sea happening in our Midwestern world. And you're thinking, this just isn't my, I mean, golly, this is dramatic. And man, Stuart, you started with those two stories. I mean, that's heart-wrenching. But I mean, I've never had my mom and my wife die on the same day. Right. I, I understand. Why would the writer of this psalm use such dramatic imagery? Well, that's a way of capturing us, actually. Writers will often use metaphor. Historians will tell epic stories, and it's our work as the reader of the scriptures or of histories or of literature. It's our work to say, okay, here's the big reality they're giving me in a metaphor, a historical event, but what's the way in which I understand this can touch my life? What's the way in which this might move my life? No, maybe earth has not trembled, but I've known the profundity of being abandoned by a parent. And no, maybe the mountains haven't fallen into the sea, and I don't know the roaring and churning of the sea, but I know the roaring and churning of looking at the end of the month and having no idea financially how I'm going to get there. I know the feeling of checking that website with the debt that I owe and checking it again and checking it again, and it's not going away. Oh, I know churning, if you can translate it. Oh, I know earth falling away when the person that I thought would be my best friend for life, and now we never even talk, step into the metaphor and the fullness of it. Oh, it's great and it's big, but it can be translated to small. This happened to me just a few weeks ago. It was a Friday afternoon. It was about 5 o'clock, and I saw a voicemail on my phone. I checked the voicemail, and there was a very friendly voice, she was so friendly. And she said, oh, hello, Mr. Ruck. It was automated. Hello, Mr. Ruck. This is Howard and Howard Collection Agency. Please call us at your earliest convenience. Thank you. Collection Agency, earliest convenience. I freaked out. Like, what? what? Collection Agency? I mean, is there something I don't know about? Did, did I buy something on, I never buy anything on credit. Was there a medical bill I missed? Oh, I'll call them, I'll call them right back. Well, of course, this very nice person who wasn't a person but a robot, they closed Howard and Howard Collection Agency at five o'clock on Friday, right around when they called me. All weekend long, I waited till 8 a.m. on Monday morning when I could call them. I thought about it all weekend. It had a presence in my life. I felt like things were shaking. Is there something gonna be another shoe that's gonna drop? Do I happen to owe $5,000 I just didn't know about? You may go, Stuart, you, you know your accounts. You should, have, you should have been affected by this. Have you ever had a collection agency call you? You don't have to raise your hand. Don't, don't raise your hand. <laughs> a lot of you have. You're ashamed. You know how you're going to pay it. 
I did call it 8.01 a.m. on Monday morning. And they very friendly, in a friendly way, looked up my name and told me, oh, we, we had the wrong phone number. We're so sorry, Mr. Ruck. And I, because I'm a Christian, said, oh, that's fine. No worries. God bless you. I did not do that. I am a Christian, but I didn't do that. I said, maybe you should be far more careful with the people that you call on Friday afternoon at 5, leaving us hanging all weekend, wondering what debt we owe to what person. I did say that. <laughs> but my earth shook. My earth shook. You're waiting three days for that test result, right? You're not sure when the doctor's going to call. Will they call? Will they email you? Will you miss it? Your earth shakes. God is a very present help. It's just declared by the psalmist. It's just given to us. It's just true. It's just true. God is a very present help. How do you access that help? How do you know that help? I think there's a clue in the construction of that very first phrase in verse 1. God is our refuge and strength. One, one scholar says you can, you can hear the voice of the people of God singing this, and they would have sung this. Our refuge and strength. They just sung it all together. God is our refuge and strength. We're a collective reality. We're bonded to one another as the people of God, following Yahweh, living under Torah, living in all that He's given us. We're together in this. So to access the strength, to know His refuge, you cannot do that alone. You have to have kingdom collaborators that you are building in your life, people who believe in the kingdom of God. They believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. They believe in the scriptures, and you're collaborating together to live your life there. You have to prepare for when that earth moment falling through may come, that you have kingdom collaborators who come with you, and they pray with you, and they bring you scriptures, and they say the kingdom of God is real even though your earth is shaking. My earth isn't shaking right now. Your earth is shaking right now. I can promise you that God is a very present help in trouble. When I was ill for months, and seriously ill, I'm so glad I'm a part of this world here where I have built kingdom collaborators for years. So I need somebody to teach me again in the moment of calamity that God was my refuge and my strength. They were there for me. They brought me the Bible. They came and sat and talked to me. And I could believe when I had that. I'm glad I have fostered habits of accessing God's strength accessing God's refuge before that moment came. I had habits that way. So then I, when I got a difficult doctor's appointment and I heard a difficult prognosis, I had a habit to go away from that and to go, before I get too emotional about this, I've got to get with God. He's very present. Build those habits now. Build those kingdom collaborators now. He's our refuge and strength. The want me to translate this would be, God is to us puts a beautiful emphasis on that personal pronoun. God is to us refuge and strength. Here, the poet talks about calamity that's natural forces. It's that which is outside of us. It's, it's that which we feel like we can't control. It's a sense of chaos. But then he goes from there to an experience of attack or siege. Move with me there to verse 4. 
I think that is different in your bulletin if you're looking at that. And here we have a beautiful phrase. I don't know, maybe one of the most beautiful phrases in the Bible. I, I don't, how do you do that? I don't know. But it's really beautiful. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning comes. And down to verse 7. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, would be another way to translate that. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Likely, the context for this would be a siege or an attack against Jerusalem, which happened often. And the great danger in a siege or an attack was not simply being attacked by enemies. You were in a walled city. Jerusalem is still walled. Ancient Near Eastern cities were, were walled cities to protect. But the danger would be that once you were there, while you may be able to defend from the enemy from the walls, the, the gruesome reality was, would there be enough to eat? Would there be anything to drink? Or would you slowly starve to death, slowly die of a gruesome dehydration? What the psalmist is saying is that here in the city of God, here in Zion, God has created sanctuary, but it's a sustaining sanctuary. There's a river. There are streams. There is water available. One scholar studies this, Dr. Alan Ross, and says, it's possible that the writer is referring to a spring, a spring that actually flowed up from the city of David and through Jerusalem. He's referring to a water source that was there, that while they may be walled in and there may be attackers coming from outside, they can drink and how glad that makes the city. There's a sustaining power in the sanctuary of God. We're sustained by the Word of God. We're sustained by the Eucharist, the real presence of Jesus given to us within the sanctuary of God to sustain us, to strengthen us. You're not trapped in the church. As a matter of fact, we go out from the church constantly. We live in the marketplace. We live in our families. We live in our communities. We bring the reality that God is a refuge and strength to those who do not believe in God. We do so gladly. We do so boldly. But then we come within the walls again. We have sanctuary here. We have sustenance there, real sustenance. This food changes you. This food strengthens you. This food keeps you alive. Because it's magic? No. Because it's the very presence of our Lord Jesus Christ given to us in bread and wine, his body and blood. It's like a stream. There's so many streams that flow through the sanctuary of God. You've got to get in here. You've got to get out there. And you've got to get in here. And when you're here, it has to be a safe place and a holy place and a feeding place. But even that is not enough. He leaves from this, and the sustenance here, the sustenance of the river, to the very presence of God himself. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Oh, we thank God for Jerusalem. God chose to visit Jerusalem with his holy presence. It's a holy place, and we honor Jerusalem. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is critical in the life of the Jewish people, critical in the life of the Christian but the fact of the matter is, that Jerusalem that they love, that Jerusalem that is a citadel, 
will be destroyed from this point when it's been written, not once, but twice in 586 B.C. and then again in 70 A.D. But the presence of God could not be destroyed. The presence of God could not be overcome. So we love those places where we meet with God and we love the realities of our lives where we feel strong enough to meet with God or smart enough to meet with God or our minds working in a way that we can meet with God. But do you understand that what is happening here is primarily a celebration of the presence of God? Oh, it's a song of Zion and it's a song of the sunrise of the presence of God and nothing less. She shall not be moved because of the presence of God. You will not be moved because of the presence of God. You can lose your health. You can lose your money. You can lose your job. But you need not be moved. The presence of God is all-consuming. It was the presence of God that made the people of Israel. It was the presence of God that makes the people of God now followers of Jesus. That's where the psalmist is taking us. That's his celebration. That's his declaration. He's not apologizing for it. Here is the presence of God, refuge and strength. Here is the presence of God like a river whose streams make glad the city of God. You may be under siege. You may feel like there's attack happening in your life. Things are coming from outside in your workplace, from family members you thought you could trust. There's attack coming in. There's a siege happening. It may be that the presence of somebody else is more powerful in your life because they're attacking you than the presence of God himself. That presence has no ultimate spiritual power over your life compared to this presence of God. It's more powerful than your health. It's more powerful than your money. You have this beautiful refrain then, in verses 7 and 11, the Lord of the army is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And yes, if you're recognizing Martin Luther's great hymn, he took it from Psalm 46. The Lord of the armies is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. You have in the original language a word that is connected to the word Emmanuel. We often, if you're used to this language, if you're newer to the Bible, you may not be used to it, God with us. Or another way to come at that would be the with us God. The with us God. Our Lord Jesus will be prophesied as one who will be called Emmanuel. He will come with us, by us, he will die on the cross. He will be raised from the dead. And we will have an indwelling presence of God. I've taught you this before. The resurrected one lives in me. Nothing can overcome the resurrected one. That's the declaration. Third declaration, third stanza. Come, behold the works of the Lord. It's just one declaration after another. He makes wars cease. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. He is a conqueror 
amidst great conflict. What you have is a picture of the nations at war, the nations going against the people of Israel, the nations at war with one another, the sense of constant war, constant violence that was the reality in, in, in the day then and is the reality in our day now. What we have is a fact of constant conflict. Yet behold the works of the Lord, the psalmist says. And he moves to one of those beautiful, beautiful verses. Be still and know that I am God. Okay, I'm going to bet if you become a Christian, uh, maybe this is your first year as a Christian. I won't make a bet on this. But if you've been a Christian for a year or longer, you've probably been to a retreat, and the theme was be still and know that I am God. I'm just, just going to guess. All right. That's a great theme. I mean, it's a really good theme. But often that theme on a retreat is let's be quiet. Let's kind of quiet, which is very important on a retreat. Let's be quiet. Let's be still. I'm so busy in my life. Let's be still and know that God is God. The next time you choose that as a theme, choose it. But choose it with the context that we are still not simply to be quiet. We are still for clarity that there is a conqueror who is a peaceable king who will overcome all the forces of the kingdom of darkness that are arrayed against the kingdom of light, who will overcome the reality of war and violence that is happening throughout countries today, that we are still and we are clear that God is God and there is no other. He's our only refuge, our only strength. He's a very present help in trouble. We are still and we know that God will overcome. Oh yes, the spiritual realities that we deal with in this culture, but let's be clear. He will make wars cease, verse 9, to the end of the earth. Many of us have never been in war. We have no idea what it's like to all of a sudden hear, maybe three hours before it's going to happen, that they're going to come in and bomb your village. We have no idea what it's like to go, I'm leaving my job. I'm gathering my family. I don't know where to go where the bombs are not going to hit. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to protect my family. And what, what happens? See, we, we go, all the wars cease. Oh, yeah, may wars cease. But if you've lived in a war zone... You become a refugee because of a war zone? You're banking on this being true. You're like, God, please come and make war cease. And the promise here is that he is coming and he will come. There is a future promise in here. There's a future promise that God will return in fullness to the earth and establish his kingdom. No, no, there is a promise for today. That's in this poem. That's in this psalm. But as he concludes it, he's leading you toward the future. And it is not facile. And it is not empty. It's only empty if Jesus isn't returning to the earth. It's only empty if he won't one day totally overcome the kingdom of darkness. It's only empty if heaven is totally separated from earth in some kind of bizarre disconnection. But it means so much if actually heaven is surrounding the reality of earth. As the philosopher Peter Kreeft has said, don't think of heaven and earth utterly separated from each other. Think about heaven surrounding earth. And the earth is God's workshop. God is working things out on earth. He's working a plan of salvation here on earth. He's moving toward a consummation. As we will proclaim in just minutes, Jesus will come again. And wars will cease. And bows will be broken and spears shattered and chariots put on fire. Praise God. Praise the Lord. He's a very present help. But he's also a future hope. And as American Christians, we have to train 
our thinking for the future hope. Trust in the present help. But believe in the future hope. They're both here. We have to empathize with those who are suffering throughout the world who need wars to cease. Refugees, immigrants, we love them. We engage with them. There's two extremes, as I conclude, that can, that can happen here. As, as we believe that indeed God has the final word, that God is the peaceable conqueror. By the way, I just, you, you please, just, this is the 1030 service. I'm going to go just a couple minutes longer. You just have to look at the beauty of verse 9. I just don't want you to miss it. Look, look at the beauty of that poetry. He breaks the bow. Even in the English, you can hear it. Shatters the spear. Burns chariots with fire. Your Bible is so beautiful. Don't miss the beauty in your Bible. There's two extremes. One is that we've come to believe that the work of the kingdom of God is all up to us. And we must hear in this, no, no, be still and know that God is God. The kingdom, the work of the kingdom of God is not all up to us. Come, behold the works of the Lord. But a reaction to that, which was especially strong even 50 to 75 years ago, we have to bring in the kingdom, we have to bring in all that work. There could be a reaction to that, which is that we have nothing to do with the bringing in of the kingdom. That it's all God's work, God does everything, God wins, all which is true. But that somehow we're not with the Lord of armies. He leads the battle and yet calls us to be co-laborers in the battle, 1 Corinthians 3. So let us avoid unnecessary activism that we're about to bring the kingdom of God in, but let us also be astute biblically to avoid a kind of kingdom passivity. I don't need to step into controversial issues, we might say. God works it out in the end anyway. I don't think that's biblical. Instead, we're still... And we know that God is conquering and will conquer. And we engage with peaceableness and freedom and confidence. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.